James. This is part 13. In case you're wondering, in the teachings that I have listed that I've done, this is teaching number 1,828. Soundness of soul from the inside out. The title is, Resisting the Devil and Submitting to God, Learning to Live the Exalted Life. We read two texts. I just want to read the James portion again and comment on it because there's something you should have noticed, especially this Sunday. James 4, 7 to 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now bear in mind, James writes to Christians. We already saw that in the first chapter in his introduction. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Look at this. Be wretched. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I was thinking, I wish I was doing I wish I was doing a service opener like Steve did. All of it true, everything he said absolutely true about happiness and joy and smile. And then I was thinking of the text that Tina Marie read and had us all just so happy about God's grace. And I don't disagree with anything either of those people said. All 100% true. And if it weren't for the fact that we're working through a book and you have to take every sentence in the book, you'd probably never start off a service saying, be wretched. Good morning, everybody. Be wretched today. Mourn, weep. What, what, do you, what do you do when Ephesians, especially that second chapter and all the wonderful things that make you so happy about God's grace, and then in the same Bible, you bump into this. How, how, how do we put this stuff together in our Christian life? The reason these verses matter is made clear in the last verse from last week's teaching, which was chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's easy to think when you talk about grace, amazing love, amazing grace. How does, how does grace come? It's easy to think grace falls from God's hand the way snow falls from the sky. But our text says that isn't so. It says God gives grace to particular people. The humble. See it? 4, 6, right at the end. I'm not making it up. Gives grace to the humble. It's an important and often overlooked insight. We all know grace is for sinful people. 
But not all sinful people will experience the full measure of God's grace. Grace isn't automatically bestowed to people just because they're sinners. It's bestowed to humble sinners, sinners who are honest, honest with themselves, honest with God. And that's why the next logical words, after that sixth verse, which we studied last week, the next logical words from James Penn are, Submit, therefore, to God. If it comes to the humble, submit to God. Verse 7. And then, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Verse 10. So, today's text is all about submitting to God's order to receive His grace. Everybody needs grace. Not everybody gets grace. God gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. That's 4, 6, and 7. And so we're all meant to see this connection. I've talked about it. Between deliberate, careful, costly submission and wonderful, joy-producing, free grace. It's not a contradiction. Grace is free... Grace is never unconditional. If nobody's told you that before, free and unconditional are not synonyms. Salvation is free. The Bible says, not of works, no one can boast. But while it's free, while it's conditioned upon repentance, it's conditioned upon faith, it's conditioned upon a knowledge of Christ. So this is where James is going as he prepares the people to receive God's free yet conditional grace. Free grace comes from honest humility before God. This text is important. It's important because there's a whole kind of distorted movement afoot right now in the evangelical church that thinks you magnify God's grace by de-emphasizing obedience, talk of self-sacrifice, devotion. People often come up to me and say, "I, I go to a grace church. I go to church with a grace message. And so you and I, according to this teaching, are to, are to kind of just rest, relax, enjoy God, be released from the rigors often associated with the Christian life as though the call to grace and the call to diligence were exclusive, mutually exclusive. And James wants to correct that kind of murky thinking. Point number one. There's more to, re- to the receiving of grace than being cleansed of sin and guilt. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There's the verb, of course, there. There's the other one. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you know if you've received God's grace? Now you know it's a trick question. How many have received God's grace? Let me see your hand. Okay, that's about a quarter of you. Ministry room is going to be really busy after church today. What makes you a believer? Maybe that's more common terminology. 
it has to be an important question for Christians to think about because James has already dealt with it at least twice in this short letter. In 2.14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And he expects the answer to that rhetorical question to be, No. No, that faith can't save him. Or 2.19, you believe, believe, believer, believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So demons are believers. Demons believe, he says. Where's he going with this? If being a believer isn't just a matter of claiming to be a believer, what is. How do I know if I've received God's saving grace? And James said in last week's teaching, God gives grace. So we're meant to see the freeness of it. We don't earn it. He gives it. 4.6. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives. There it is again. Grace to the humble. If God gives grace, then I receive it. And in the very first words... The very next verse, the first verse of today's text, the seventh verse, James tells us what grace receivers look like. They do two things. They submit to God, and they resist the devil. Do you see that in that seventh verse? The two verbs. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. So grace doesn't take the verbs out of my Christian life. You you submit to God with every ounce of strength you have. You resist the devil with a passion and a zeal of of a committed exerciser trying to lose 50 pounds. Grace never brings relaxation. Grace never brings indifference. Grace, when it's received, always fuels the verbs of your Christian life. Grace grace punctuates and activates diligence and submission and creative, countercultural devotion and committed discipleship. That's how you know if you've received grace. Anybody can say they've received it. Two, submitting to God is more than just trying to do what he says. This is the balance. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And then I want to look at this purify your hearts, you double minded. Why do we find it so hard to submit to God? I mean, we, we gather together like this, and every Sunday we tell him how much we love him a thousand times, right? 
We tell him how much he means to us. We tell him how good he is, how righteous he is, how loving he is. We express this devotion from our hearts. And yet, talk to Christian people. And they, they have this habit, and, and they know this isn't pleasing to the Lord, but they keep doing it. There's Christians in this church right now. They live together outside of marriage. They justify it. All sorts of things that we just find it really hard, in spite of everything we say about our faith, we find it hard on so many different little squeak points to submit And James wants to say there's a reason, there's a reason so many find it hard to submit their lives to God. I see this order in James' thoughts. First, first there's this overarching concern of the whole passage. If we are recipients of grace, we show it by submitting to God. And I think we're probably meant to pause. We're probably meant to pause and pray over that idea. I think James means for us to see the complete strangeness of Christians having to be told to submit to God. I mean, mean, ponder the deception that can thrive in all of our religious hearts as James writes to these Christians that we can actually think about grace and being saved and going through all the religious stuff that we do in church, and we can still live substantial chunks of our lives not submitted to God. And so James has to say, here's here's where it starts. You have to submit to God. And, And then, second, he explains what submitting to God is all about in in actually two more sub-points. Submitting to God is two things in this order. Submitting to God is resisting the devil, verse 7, and drawing near to God, verse 8. Resist the devil, he says, and I wouldn't have put that first. James is emphatic. After saying, after saying yes to Jesus Christ, the very first word divine grace brings and empowers is, is, a, is a no. You, you can't say yes to submitting to God without first saying no and resist the devil. If you try and say yes to God at any point without first saying no to the devil, the world, he says you just you kind of become adulteresses by fault. That's, by the way, we looked at that. That's in James 4.4. 4. This is what happens when you try and say yes to God without saying no to the world. Adulterous people. I talked a lot about that last week. I, I won't do it again. And there's something that he wants them to... There's an understanding point here. Don't you know? And that's his way of saying you don't know this. You don't know this as deeply as you need to know it. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes, now we're dealing with the heart, see? He's not talking about people that rob banks and, and are addicted to internet pornography or, or commit adultery. Just in the heart, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, it's default, an enemy of God. So the idea there again is submitting to God involves two things. It involves saying no 
to the devil. We probably don't word it that way. The world, the way our, the way our thoughts and our hearts get drawn into the, the cultural drift of our age, the way we adopt the values of society around us, that's what he means by resisting the devil. So the way you submit to God is you start with the negative. You start with what you push out of your life. You start with what you resist. And then the 4-4 text was saying, if you don't do that, just, just in the heart, just that alliance with the world around you, you have made yourself. God didn't do it. You've made yourself an enemy of God. These adulterous people aren't people who don't love God. That's not his point. I can commit adultery while I still love my wife. I may think she's a wonderful wife. I, I probably wouldn't trade her for the woman I had an affair with. I would never marry this woman. I wouldn't want to marry this woman. I want to be married to my wife. But in making this alliance, I've betrayed her. It's no use to tell my wife that on the whole, I love her more. She's not likely to be satisfied with that. It's not that these adulterous people these people who refuse to resist the devil, it's not that they don't love God. They do claim to love God. But in so many ways that seem innocent and acceptable, they've become friends with the world. These are people who said yes to God without saying no to the world. James says, well, if you're talking about receiving grace, you, you can't live like that. The reason we read those verses from Titus is to show that this isn't some isolated, quirky phrase from, you know, James, prudish James. He's just hammering out what you can do and what you can't do. That's why Luther never really liked the book of James. The problem is the whole Bible comes at this in exactly the same way. And so we read the passage, or at least some of it, from Titus. Titus 2, 11 to 14 and it's a, it's a passage about this. See that? It's a passage about grace. Grace of God, and what it does is it brings salvation for all people. They're not all saved, but it brings it for all people. Oops, what did I do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Does that sound like James resisting the devil? To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. If anyone tells you Jesus isn't called God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. To, what did he give us? He, he gave himself, why? To redeem us. We just talk about being redeemed. The text talks about redeemed from What? Redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Wait a minute. Works? Grace? 
I thought, I thought, not of works. Well, you don't get grace by working for it. That's Ephesians. That's what it's all about. But the writer here is talking about what grace does once you've received it. Don't tell me you don't want to hear about holiness and, and, and keeping the law of God because you want a grace church or a grace message. If you get a grace message, what does it do? A grace message doesn't make you interested in grace. A grace message gets you interested in good works. It's like faith. If you just talk to people about faith, 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 they're never going to grow in faith. Talk to people about God and his word, and people will grow in faith. The grace of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. What does it do? Titus 2.12, training us. Grace renounces ungodliness, 2.12. That's what it does. Let me just ask you something. Do you just see forgiveness when someone says grace? Or do you see a gymnasium when someone says grace? Training. Training us. Do you just see forgiveness? Or do you see a gymnasium? A training camp. Grace makes us more negative about certain things than we would have been on our own. Yeah. That's James' shocking reminder about what happens when God gives grace, 4-6, when he gives grace to the humble. And, and the reason that's shocking for us is we've come to believe that the mark of humility is, is just kind of being open and tolerant to almost everything. We think humility means not being against anything. Who am I to judge? Who am I to say? That isn't humility at all. That's just laziness. And it's worldliness. And it's indifference. Grace that's given to the humble, it doesn't create mere openness. Humility before God is bowing to his revelation and his authority against the, 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 the tide of unacceptance and criticism from the world who sees God's truth as bigoted and restricting and narrow and intolerant. No wonder you get this repeated emphasis in the Scriptures. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man, and then it's tied. Forget this. We're not even talking yet about the law of the Lord. Okay? Before he even gets to the law of the Lord, the psalmist does three other things. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight... See, until you do these things, until you do those three things... You can't delight in the law of God. It'll always seem unreasonable because the counsel of the ungodly is always going to tell you that this is an old-fashioned, narrow, bigoted, hateful book. And if you're trying to delight in this while you're exposing your mind more frequently to the counsel of the world than you can shake a stick at, you're never going to delight in God's law. You can't.
He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scarf. He doesn't do any of it. He deletes those things to the degree that it's possible to do it. Then he finds he delights in the law of the Lord. What's he do? Well, he meditates day and night in it. And so James orders his words about receiving God's grace and resisting the devil along exactly the same lines as the book of Titus, the psalmist. These these verses are all about ordering your life submissively according to the will of God. David describes a man who lies awake at night, but it's not because he can't sleep or he's finishing a movie or a novel. He's awake because he's, he's anxious to know God's ways and he's meditating on his word. He's turned his back on the counsel of the wicked. He's walked away from the way of sinners. He's ignored the stinging word of scoffers of absolute divine truth. If you want to receive God's grace at all, you will manifest it by submitting to God. And that doesn't mean just agreeing with God, but submitting to God. And James says, and the psalmist says, and the book of Titus says, if you want to submit to God, the first thing you have to do is turn away from a host of other things. So resist the devil, verse 7. And the second thing, here's people who receive grace. They draw near to God. First you resist, and then you draw near. And here, too, James has to expand a little bit on what he means. Draw near to God. There's the subject. He will draw near to you. Two things are involved in drawing near to God. There's this cleansing of the hands, sinners, actions, deeds, and there's the purifying of the heart. When he, when he talks about that, he expands. He wants us to see what he means, and he says, double-minded. So the hands, that's one, and the heart, that's two. Both these things are involved in drawing near to God. Notice how James just continues to analyze the nature of submitting to God. It's hard talking to Christians about stuff they think they already know, stuff we've heard about before. And so the first thing he says is, submitting to God means resisting the devil and friendship with the world. It means saying no to certain things. If you, if you have to have the acceptance of everyone, all of your friends, you're never going to submit to God, okay? It costs. So there's that resisting, push back, no. Second, he says it means drawing near to God. And even here, when he talks about drawing near to God, he deals specifically with The hands, the actions, the things we do that aren't right. And then our hearts, particularly in double-mindedness. Let 
This is a very careful description of the kind of purity of heart James has in mind. He's writing to Christians. And you'll notice this link between purity of heart. Purify your hearts, you you double-minded. James isn't thinking primarily of a filthy heart. He's speaking more of a divided heart. Double-minded. It doesn't mean the doubleness is manifested in things that are wicked... The doubleness is wicked in and of itself. This is a heart that may not have a trace of immorality or theft or violence in it, but it's a heart split between two devotions rather than just one. And James says there, that's the purity issue for the body of Christ. Double-mindedness is how Christians get away from God. This is why these people, these Christians to whom he writes, they need, they need to draw near to God again. They haven't rejected him. They haven't denied him. They still affirm him, praise him, worship him, but they've become careless. We've learned some of the things as we've studied this book. He's given this list of symptoms of double-mindedness. These are people that don't act on what they hear from God's word, 22 to 25. These are people that bless God with their worship but say cruel things about brothers and sisters in Christ. That's in 3, 9 to 12. These are Christians who quarrel and fight with each other to get their own way, to protect their rights, even though they've been forgiven so patiently and freely by Father God. That's chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And these are just examples. Examples of dozens of patterns of behavior that become, that become addicting and habit-forming in the lives of millions of church-going people. Double-mindedness. And he says, what happens is these things, they separate us from God. So the drawing near that James commands isn't the drawing... It isn't the drawing near of conversion. These people are professing Christians. And the drawing near isn't the drawing near of worship. That needs to be said because we almost have come to believe that as long as we have a hot worship time, we're automatically in God's presence. And worship is a form of drawing near to God as long as it is worship from clean hands, and a pure heart. Not from double-minded people. So, James is describing, as he will make abundantly clear in the next two verses, this drawing near to God is a drawing near in repentance. People who draw near to God repent a lot. They repent over and over and over. Point number three. Now we get to these verses. Renewal, revival, renewal, you can put whatever word you want in there. I chose renewal. Renewal isn't the top blowing off. It's the bottom falling out. Be wretched. Mourn. 
weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you know what I hear? What kind of blessed mourning is this? Did James get this idea from Jesus? Blessed are those who mourn. What I hear James saying is, in spite of everything you have going for you, when you hear this call, this fresh call to resist the world and to draw near to God, don't hear it lightly. When you hear the call to draw near to God, it's a holy, healthy time to weep. Let this break your heart. These are good tears. This is a holy morning. It's quite a commentary on the contemporary church that there is almost nothing in these verses that we feel we can get a handle on. They might as well be words in a foreign language. Until you get to the last five words, and he, we like these, don't we? He will exalt you. He will lift you up. The farther you go down, the higher he will lift you up. The more you try and stay up here, you'll find all sorts of things that are going to come and pull you down to bring you to a repentant heart. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Here's what I hear James saying. Dawn, don't find true contentment in anything but drawing near to Christ. Don't go to church early on Sunday so you can have the bulk of the day for your own pleasures. Don't allow family or money or sports or entertainment or success make you content in this world. Let God decide how he will exalt your life. Listen to these words from James because he didn't just make them up. He spent a lot of time with his family member, Jesus. And then he had years of pastoral experience to mull over some of the things that Jesus said. Things like, let me just read it to you, Luke 6, 21 to 25. Blessed are you who are hungry now. You will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. You shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You Christians, you follow Jesus. You think you're the only ones going to heaven. You think you're better than everybody else. Look at all the damage that's been done in religious wars. You people are nothing but a problem, and they're going to hate you because of your commitment to Jesus. Conditions now, in our culture right now, are probably the most similar to when the church was born. It was born in a world that hated followers of Christ. And we're getting there. And God knew how to take care of the church then, and he knows how to take care of it now. Blessed are you. This is good. When people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn you as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, clearly, this is when people hate you because of your commitment to Jesus. 
This doesn't cover when they hate you just because you're obnoxious. Okay? Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to those who are rich. These are people who just who find their contentment here. Okay? You've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. I got this, I got this. We, our kids are in hockey, and we, we've got the cottage, and we love sports, and got lots of money, and everything's going well. This is, it's good. Pastor Don, it's just good. Woe to you, Jesus says. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Don't see those words as some kind of prudish pronouncement of a fun-hating God that just looks for someone who might be enjoying herself and says, "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm. It's not what this is about. Here's what I want to leave you with as I close. Think about Peter. Think of Peter after he denied Jesus three times. Think of Peter who knows he just betrayed Betrayed as surely as Judas. Betrayed as Lord. And he couldn't just shake that failure off. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. He, he stops everything else. He cancels every other appointment. He turns off the TV, his smartphone, silenced his Twitter account, and he just goes and he finds a good place to weep and to mourn and to wail. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus sees Peter, and he exalts him. Oh, how Jesus loves lifting the repentant. How he loves to help and elevate those who are contrite and broken. It's a message that's hard for us to receive. Ironically, it's the church that made it hard for people to be exalted by God because it's the church that has trained us that everything has to be up and light and breezy and positive. But if you can get past all the trends and the hype, there is still a surefire way to come home again. Give this process time. Give this process silence. Draw near to God with tears. People who have received grace are the humble, right? That's where we started. Anybody can say they've received grace. People who receive grace are the humble. Humble people are people who submit to God. James has to tell us that all over again. Humble people submit to God. They do it in two ways. They resist the devil. Start there. If you're finding your Christian life no fun at all, before you think all you need is another Bible study or a prayer meeting, and you probably do, not denying that, but before you think that's what you need, look for the counsel of the ungodly in your life. Look for the influence of a culture that you're not resisting in any way, shape, or form. You start there. If you want to submit to God, you start by resisting 
the devil and his work. And the second thing is you draw near to God. And the beautiful promise is he will draw near to you. If you do it that way, he will draw near to you and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Let's pray.